Good morning. Thank you, guys. Well, let's let's pray. Let's just go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for... <laughs> God, thank you for... <laughs> thank you for this church, God. Thank you for these people and um, the joy uh, that we share um, in our lives, um, bonded together with uh, over you and in fellowship um, together out of our love for you. Father, I pray that... Uh, you would guide us this morning as we consider your word. Um, I, I ask that you would give us wisdom to see and hear what you have for us in it. And I pray that you would graciously strengthen us to trust your word and to walk in its goodness. Um, relieve us from the, the stress, the, the distractions, the inner turmoil that cry out for our attention. God, I pray that you would give us humility to lay our needs at your feet, knowing that in you we have all that we need. We have so much more than we need. God, with, with joyful hearts, with downcast souls and tired hands and tired feet, with strength that you've supplied, we come to you for what you and you alone can provide. You have the words of life. May they take root in our souls and grow under the care of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus 25, 23. My name is Zach. I think that's been mentioned a couple of times. I don't presume to be so important that people know my name, but I don't want to get in the way either. So my name's Zach. I'm the associate minister here, and this is a, a one-off sermon on dwelling with God, being near him and his holiness. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus 25, starting in verse 23. And while you're doing that, I'm going to read from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is a pretty well-known passage. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. One more time. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as we read Exodus 25, 23, hopefully you were turning there or pressing your screen to get to that location. Uh, when we read that and those following verses, I want you to hold the words of 2 Timothy 3 in your mind. How is Exodus 25 profitable? How does it train us in righteousness? How does it equip you for good works? So this is Exodus 25, starting in verse 23. What a a nice picture. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. Now, cubit is about... And the picture is there at a foot and a half. So two cubits is three feet or 36 inches. And the picture is there to help you... Imagine, you know, you're not really imagining it. I guess it's right there to, to see what is being described. So you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and paste the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the ring shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these 
And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. How are we feeling? <laughs> we feeling built up and encouraged and ready for some good works reading Exodus 25? Uh, probably not. This is not exactly John 3.16. But Paul is clear. All scripture, even Exodus 25, is from God and profitable. And it's not just Exodus 25 that's difficult. There are large chunks of Exodus, basically the entire book of Leviticus, and huge portions of Numbers that seem much less profitable for teaching than for sleeping. But Paul knows there's something here for us in the tabernacle's blueprints and this code of conduct we find in Leviticus. And in order to get to that meaning, we're going to need to take a moment to understand the role these books would have played in ancient Israel. The first five books of the Old Testament are referred to variously as the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Law, the books of Moses. These five books served as a foundational document for Israel. Imagine if we, as Americans, had a single book that contained the words of the Declaration of Independence... The text of the Constitution, lyrics to songs like the Star-Spangled Banner and My Country Tis of Thee. And all of this was alongside key stories about leaders from America's infancy, like George Washington. A book like that, The History of America's Founding, wouldn't just tell us what happened once upon a time. It would show us where we had come from and why we are who we are. Our history tells us who we hope to be as a nation. The revolution that gave birth to the United States created a land of the free and home of the brave. Now, the first five books of the Bible function in a similar fashion. They were not written simply to capture a moment in time or or several lots of dozens of moments in time across history so that the Israelites could remember how things once were. The Torah, which is the Jewish name for these five books, it was written to instruct and inspire its people in who they were called and established to be. Yes, there are lots of failures in the record, but those failures are there to guard against future temptations, further mistakes, future transgressions, and to steer the people toward their shared vision, their their shared ideal that was given to them after all by God. So when we read Israel's history as 21st century Christians, we ought to be sharing their ideal. We can fail to understand it, as did the Israelites. We don't always get it right. They didn't always get it right. We don't always understand, but that doesn't mean the ideal isn't there for God's people. God's word is true even if every single one of us were wrong. We're not reading the history of some far-off, obscure people in place. As Christians, this is our story because we believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Israel's ideal. Now, unfortunately, the difficulties of Exodus and Leviticus mean we are much more likely to leave them out of our Bible reading plans. And when we neglect these books... Minus the stuff about leaving Egypt. We, we're all pretty familiar with that. But when we neglect the rest of, of Exodus and we neglect Leviticus, we are going to inevitably lose sight of the ideal depicted and the future foreshadowed 
that Christ has come and fulfilled. So this morning we're going to look at the dry and difficult parts of Exodus and Leviticus in a, in a very brief introductory kind of way. And we're going to see what the tabernacle and sacrifices have to say for our prophet. So let's pick back up in Exodus, back in Exodus 25, now starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair. Tanned ram skins. Goat skins. Acacia wood. Oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting. For the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Moses is told by God to collect building building supplies from anyone among the people willing to give them. And as you read on, you find that the people are more than happy to give way more than what they end up needing for this project. But this is the most basic and straightforward understanding of these verses. Uh, Here's what you're going to need to build. So if you're going to continue reading the tabernacle blueprints, you're going to find that these are the materials God commands Moses to use for the tent poles, for the Ark of the Covenant, for the table that we saw beautifully pictured on the screen, the lamp, the altars, the priest's clothes, all these things, gold for just about everything, wood for nearly everything that would then be plated in gold. The blue and purple and scarlet yarns for the curtains, because after all, this was a tent. If we take our interpretation a step further, we can easily imagine the the effect that these materials would have had in the building, especially the gold. The glimmer of gold would have given it all a sense of grandeur. We might be separated by thousands of years of history and countless cultural differences, but gold is still gold. Imagine... If all of the wood in this room were trimmed in gold, and imagine if there were gold features throughout this building. Now, it might be hard to imagine that without thinking it was a bit tacky and pretentious, but it would still give a sense of grandeur to this place. And not only that, but it's only tacky or pretentious if it's not backed up by substance, if it's a cover for shallow nothingness. Which moves us to the most important detail of this passage in Exodus 25. What is the substance adorned by the gold, the silver, the bronze, the precious stones? We read it in verse 8. This is a sanctuary, a holy place for God to dwell in the midst of his people. But that doesn't even really quite cover it. Because it's not just that God will dwell with them. Even more importantly, God desires to dwell with them. This project of cohabitation is not initiated by the people, but by God. God's presence is not a reward to be earned when they've been good enough. God saves them, he rescues them, and he says, I want to be here. I'm going to dwell with you. It is a gift to be received. But God, being God utterly and immeasurably holy, 
His presence has to be handled and received with care. Thus the call for a holy place, a sanctuary, to be built with materials that set it apart from the rest of the camp. Which brings up another interesting fact about the tabernacle. Remember, the Israelites were living in tents in the wilderness. Well, God would eventually command them, after the tabernacle had been completed, he would command them to organize their tents, however many thousands there might have been, They were to organize their tents, their camp, with the tabernacle at the center. But but there's more. It gets better. If you're tracking with me, it gets better. right? Because God's presence was manifested night and day over the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud or a fire. And sometimes that cloud would lift. And when the cloud lifted, the Israelites were to pack their things and wait to see where the cloud would descend. And they would rebuild the tabernacle there and they would rebuild their camp in that spot. So their, their existence as a people literally revolved around God's presence in this tabernacle. Where they set up depended on where God's presence was. The heart of their community, the heart of who they were, was God right at the center dwelling in their midst. In Exodus 33, Moses names this. He identifies the importance of God's presence to their identity. Uh, Exodus 33:15 and 16 says this. It says, And he, that is Moses, said to him, that's God, he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. The identifying feature of the people of God, recognized by Moses himself, was God himself and God's presence among them. But it's not as if God needed a place to rest his head. God wasn't looking for a cozy, plot, a cozy spot to, uh, to lie down. In his time with Moses and the Israelites, he has already proven himself more than sufficient. He commanded nature in a war against Egypt and its false gods with the plagues. He appeared to Moses before that in the burning bush and has boomed, boomed from the top of Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and fire and smoke. No, given the circumstances, it is exceedingly obvious who is helping whom. The people of Israel are not wealthy or powerful. They've only barely just escaped slavery, thanks to God, and are homeless. God is working for the benefit of Israel, for keeping his promise and blessing the world. So the details of the tabernacle, the description of the Ark of the Covenant, the lamp, the table, the altars, the curtains for the tent itself, the the curtains for the curtains, right? There are curtains over the the, the curtains, the, the details for the priestly garments. All of this reads... At least in part, all of it reads as an extended meditation on Exodus 25, 8. God wants to dwell with you. And there's something to these passages that we really ought to notice. The Bible really wants us to pay attention because they show up twice. After reading about all of these things in Exodus 25 through 30, there is a brief hiatus to deal with the golden calf. That takes place in Exodus 32 through 34. But then Exodus 35 through the end of the book into 40, but especially 36 through 39, repeats much of the descriptions word for word. You find the same things, building the table this way, 
building the lamp this way, almost repeated word for word. The only difference is before God said, you should do this. This is how you would do this. And and later it says, this is how it was done. These are important things. And when we read, read them and see them, we should be drawn to realize that God wants to be near us, that God is trying to dwell with us as his people. So hopefully I've removed some of the strangeness of these passages. Um, We've only obviously looked at a very, very little bit, but you can go through and look and see and and study depths of Exodus that I've not even hinted at this morning. But if I've not removed the strangeness, perhaps this will help. Uh, Football season is upon us, and we make all kinds of accommodations for ourselves to watch football. We shop ahead of time to make sure we have food and drinks. We cook the food ahead of time to make sure we're not cooking when we should be watching. We use the restroom beforehand so we don't have to get up when the action is particularly exciting. And we take it all in on a super high-def television with a screen the size of a windshield on our most comfortable chair, and our emotions are ebbing and flowing with this game. I don't don't mean to be critical. I love football. But it's not so strange to make accommodations for God when we think about some of the silly things we do to make accommodations for ourselves. And this is God commanding these people to make accommodations for him. The same God who they have witnessed do unexplainable things. So if you find yourself in the back half of Exodus reading Tabernacle Blueprints, Hear the word speaking to you, the glorious news that the holy God who rescues men and women from the grip of death wants to dwell with us. God wants to dwell with his people, pathetic creatures that we are. Of course, it's not that simple. And you probably know that, but Leviticus will make that painfully clear. So we're going to read Leviticus 1, 1 through 9. Uh, But we're actually going to start at the end of Exodus, which is easy enough. They're right next to each other. We're going to begin reading at the very, very end of verse 33. So Exodus 40, starting at the very end of verse 33. And I just want to make a point to say that the books of the Bible, but especially these first five, they're meant to be read together and understood as a unit. These are not like separate articles on Wikipedia with some shared ideas, but nothing really connecting them. These first five books are a cohesive story. So let's look at the end of Exodus into Leviticus and you'll see how these fit together. So starting at the very end of verse 33. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, And they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the houses of Israel throughout all their journeys. Go ahead, let's turn over to Leviticus 1, starting in verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, 
and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A picture of that would not have been nearly as nice. Uh, First things first, though, it should strike you. It should strike you that Moses cannot enter the tabernacle. He can't go in. At this point, Moses has spent weeks, weeks in God's presence on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 33, verse 11, we read of God speaking to Moses face to face. And now all of a sudden he is barred from the tabernacle because God is there. It's not clear why God's presence is now a problem for Moses, at least not in the text. So the good news, though, for Moses is that the Lord's next words to him out of the tabernacle suggest that this distance isn't permanent. It isn't obvious in English, but it is in the Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew, but I know how to read the things that can read Hebrew. Um, And in Leviticus 1, verse 2, in the ESV, the words bring offering and then repeated bring offering all come from a hebrew word that means something like get closer draw near so god speaking to moses from the tent it's finished the glory descends fills it god speaks out of it to moses who cannot come in and he says when any one of you gets closer with a getting closer thing to the lord you shall get closer your getting closer thing of livestock from the herd or from the flock now, my, my terribly clunky English right there is meant to demonstrate that in, inherent to the sacrificial system is the idea of coming closer. And this becomes all the more significant when we consider the setting. Remember, God in the tabernacle and Moses outside, unable to enter. God preparing to dwell among the people and Moses preparing to lead the people with God in their midst. In Exodus, God has said, I want to dwell with you. And in Leviticus, he says, here is how you can approach me. In my opinion, this explains Moses's inability to enter the tabernacle. It's not as simple as saying, oh, sin. Moses was always a sinner. There were plenty of times where Moses was a sinner that God came into his presence. It's one thing for God to say he wants to dwell among us. God can show up whenever and wherever and however he pleases. But it's another thing entirely for a mere man to approach the holy God. Not to mention, like we already said, Moses, just like you and me, was a sinner. And in sin, we are all enemies of God. Every act of sin is a rejection of the Lord's rightful authority. It is an act of hostility towards him. Sin isn't simply a matter of offending God's tastes. Sin is war against our creator and the one who orders all things. And when we put sin in those terms, the need for sacrifices begins making more sense. 
Because in order to draw near to God, we must acknowledge that the cost of our opposition to him ought to be our lives. That our sins come with such a cost that are paid for with the life of a sacrifice. Leviticus 1.4 speaks of it in terms of atonement. The debt is paid and the stain is cleansed by the blood of the sacrifice in order for sinners to be at one, atoned at one with the Lord. The covering of the sin is not the point. The covering of the sin, the removal of it, isn't the goal. Forgiveness and cleansing are means to an even greater end. And that is union with God. Communion with God. Fellowship with Him. Getting close. Drawing near. The offerings are presented and sins are forgiven in order to get closer. Now if we were to continue in Leviticus this morning, you would find that there is much more to it than atonement offerings. There are instructions for offerings with other, go- other goals and laws of all kinds. Plenty of laws that still make good sense and plenty that seem very, very strange. And there are other lessons to be learned in Leviticus. But through it all, God is calling his people to draw near to him. Through the forgiveness of sins and through lives committed to holiness, As a beacon of God's goodness and glory among the nations, Leviticus teaches us that God wants us to draw near to him. So fundamental to Israel's founding as a drawing near to them and calling them into life with him. Leviticus 26.12 says this, And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Which means, this is fundamental for us as Christians. Our identity as Christians, our heritage, is tied up with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and yes, Moses. Christ has come as the fulfillment of Israel's ideal. He is its embodiment. Literally, Emmanuel. We sing it at Christmas. God with us. God in flesh. In whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. If the tabernacle tells us that God wants to dwell with his people, then Jesus speaks a better word. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. You may have heard this before. <laughs> you probably have heard this verse, or this verse and explained in this way. But, but the word we translate dwelt means lived in a tent. So John is saying, the word became flesh and lived in a tent among us. He tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. If you recall the end of Exodus, Exodus 40, what happens when the tent is constructed? The glory of the Lord descends and fills it and all of Israel saw it. John's callback here should be very obvious. That God has come Not in a tent with a cloud or with fire, but in the person of the Son to dwell with us. Christ is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Now, if the sacrifices prescribed by Leviticus were given as a way to approach God, so we have Exodus telling us, God is drawing near to you, God is coming to you, Christ has come to us, 
Leviticus is giving us a way to approach God. And Jesus Christ supplies a better way. Hebrews 10, really the entire book of Hebrews, but Hebrews 10 says in several places that Jesus Christ serves as the final priest of the sacrificial system, offering himself once and for all as atonement for sins. The sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Christ by his blood and not by the blood of bulls and goats. We can confidently enter into the holy places. We can confidently enter into the presence of God in a way that even Moses could not. Exodus and Leviticus tell us who we are. We are a holy people in the presence of a holy God. This is our past. It's our present. And praise God, it will be our future to be in his presence. Our lives are to be shaped by the God who draws near to us and invites us to draw near to him. And while that might look drastically different in practice than that of the Old Testament, it is the same God with the same heart completing the same work. Exodus and Leviticus remind us of what God is like and the great and gracious works he has done on our behalf. And knowing that the the same God that thundered from Sinai and led Israel through the wilderness, that his spirit is with us today, is dwelling within every single Christian. That ought to inspire hope and courage and, yes, prepare us for all kinds of good works. In Christ, God draws near to us and he makes a way for us to draw near to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. God, I pray that we would just live and we would live in light of that reality. Father, that you do not save us and leave us on our own. You do not just wipe our sins clean and tell us to figure it out. God, but you are inviting us in to closeness with you. That we can know you, be known by you, um, and have our lives revolve around you. Father, I pray that um, as we consider that, we would learn learn to trust in your love and your goodness. Knowing that these rules, these these regulations, these things you set up for us are for our good. Father, that, that when we walk in your ways, we find life because you are the the source and the giver of life. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has come as a fulfillment, uh, that we aren't looking at types and shadows and looking at the tabernacle and what it could be or sacrifices and what they, what they point us to, but that we can fix our eyes on Jesus knowing that he came and dwelt among us, that you came to be with your people, God, and, and that we will ha- would have the confidence knowing that you will come again, <laughs> that you will come again to dwell with us and make your home with us. Thank you for that hope, for that confidence. And thank you for the hope and confidence uh, of the sacrifice that Jesus made. That what once separated us from your presence, what once kept us at a distance from you, has been removed by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for his obedience, his willingness to suffer, and for your great love for us. And Father, thank you for your spirit that you give to us, that you pour out on us, that you 
used to encourage us and equip us and strengthen us for, for the fight, for the fight against sin, for the fight against our own sin, for the fight um, for goodness and for light. Father, thank you for all of these things. God, I pray that our hearts would be full of, of just the knowledge of your dwelling with us and, and, and the amen.